0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: Nahum chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches, they dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall, the protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures She is pillaged, plundered, stripped Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble Every face grows pale Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young? Where the lion and lioness went and the cubs, with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voices of your messengers will be no longer heard.
0: We've just been singing, Oh, look and see our God. Father, we would pray tonight that as we look at the pages of your word, Nahum, too, that we would look and see our God in great power and in judgment. And as we do so, would we also celebrate the power of the cross? Um, We pray that tonight you would help us to be those who run back afresh to the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it can be hard to imagine what the future will be like. I'm not talking about tomorrow, that's easy. I'm sure we can all imagine what tomorrow will be like. The alarm going off, our normal routines, the, the walk to school, the commute, um, the, just the, the, the normal chores of life. We can, we can picture that kind of future. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of future where in the present, it's hard and sad and difficult. And the kind of future we're longing for and hoping for is a good future. It's a better future. It's a future where the world is different. That's when it's hard to imagine what the future will be like. And I guess in a room this size, there'll be all kinds of reasons why we find it hard to imagine a better future. Uh, for students, if we ever faced exams, we'll know that the, the threat and stress of exams in front of us can fill our horizons. It's hard to imagine a future when there's no exams. And we're beyond all that. You can imagine there'll be some here tonight who have struggled with poor health for years and it's hard to imagine a future where there isn't that brokenness, that sickness that plagues us. There'll be others here tonight and we're single and we long to be married and we can't imagine a future where we're happy unless we are married. There'll be others tonight there's a sin that has us An addiction that just gets us every time, and we've tried and we just can't break free of it. And the horror and the frustration of it bears us down, and we can't imagine a future where we're free of it. There are Christians around the world today who have experienced tremendous brutality. Christians under ISIS having to watch loved ones be raped and beheaded, who are tortured and enslaved. And in that context, it is hard to picture a future that is better. Nahum too is written to a people who are struggling to imagine a better future. We saw last week that Nahum sees a vision that the Lord shows him about events that will take place in the future, and they are are things that are hard to imagine. Nineveh, the great capital of Assyria, that cruel and vast empire that had for centuries plagued Judah and threatened her and and almost overwhelmed her. It's a vision about Nineveh. And even now, at the peak of her powers, Nahum sees a vision of the future and it concerns her, her downfall, her destruction. And for Nahum's hearers, the people of Judah, that vision would have been almost impossible to to believe or to imagine or to picture given their present state of fear and and stress with the Assyrians in front of them. And so it's hard to imagine the future for the people of God. And it gets even harder because Nahum's vision isn't just about the downfall of Assyria. It's also about Judah's restoration. Look at verse two of Nahum 2. Nahum sees a vision of the future and he says, verse two, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. The splendor of Israel that he's talking about is, is the splendor that Israel had under King Solomon when all the tribes were, were together. Uh, the land was flowing with milk and honey. There was gold and wealth. The nations flocked to Israel to learn from her wisdom and her wealth and success. It was a moment of rare wonder and peace. And Nahum sees a vision of the future where he says, God will restore his people to be like that. And again, for little Judah, threatened by Assyria, it would be so hard to imagine a future that is better than their present. You can imagine them wondering to themselves, is it really possible that such a great reversal will take place, that the evil and wickedness will be wiped away and that God will bless and restore his people? It hadn't happened that way for centuries. Is that future possible? And I reckon at times for us today, it can almost feel the same way, almost imaginable, surrounded in a world full of Uh, evil and wickedness where these things seem to prosper, watching the news, seeing the brokenness of the world, living in times of sadness and personal difficulty perhaps, we can find it hard to imagine a future like verse two, a future where the splendor of Jacob has been restored, where there's no pain or suffering, where there's abundance and peace. And so Nahum too is going to help us we have before us tonight, basically, it's a, it's a film. It's, it's a video clip, if you like, of what will happen to Nineveh in the future. Uh, the script for our film, well, it's, it's poetic and it's evocative. It's full of metaphor and imagery. It's, it's powerful and it's, it's difficult. It's not here to give us an exact account of exactly what will happen, but it's here to, to uh, cause emotion. It's here to give God's people That conviction and confidence about the future. And verse one sets the scene for us. We read, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. Here's where, where the film begins. And as the film plays forward through the rest of Nahum 2, I think we see three great reversals that will take place for this great and evil regime of Assyria. So the first reversal we'll see is a reversal of power. For decades, the Assyrian army had been the kind of equivalent of the stormtroopers of the 7th century BC. They were kind of relentless, unstoppable. They had much better equipment than the rest of the people around them. But look at how this uh, new army is described. Uh, The view is from the defenders on the wall of Nineveh looking out over the plains. They see an army marching towards them. Verse three, the seals of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flash on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. You see, the the army marching towards Nineveh, this new threat, well, it's, it's no rabble. This is a crack army full of the latest military equipment. Uh, the shields are red, I think, probably because this army has already conquered many people and it's, it's blood on the shields, blood of their previous victims. And that's the army marching towards mighty Nineveh. And then look at verse four. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. The shock for the people on the walls of Nineveh looking out on the plain at this army. The shock is well, how close this army has got to Nineveh. You see, Assyria was a massive empire and this army had gotten all the way through all the layers of defences, right up to the suburbs of Nineveh. The chariots were racing through the streets outside the city walls. This was unthinkable for Nineveh. And yet here is the army. The camera zooms in even closer onto the commander of the Assyrian troops inside the city. Verse 5, he, he summons his picked troops. It's as if he's remembered, oh, oh, hang on a minute. I've actually got a whole army inside the city, an, an army that's used to causing mayhem and destruction across the world. Oh, I'll call that army and they'll run out and they'll destroy this advancing army. But look what happens. Yet, they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall, but it's too late. The protective shield is already in place. That's the the siege works coming up against Nineveh. They're already there. They're too late. Nineveh was built next to a river, but now it seems that that river is used against her. Verse six, the river gates are opened and the palace collapses. Imagine the scene at the beach on a summer's day, uh, children uh, working away on a, on a sandcastle with uh, turrets and walls and perhaps even a moat, spending hours just carefully sculpting everything and they step back and they, they admire their handiwork. Um, and it lasts for what, how long? Until the next tide come, comes washing in and the water comes and just melts away the sandcastles and turrets and moats, all gone in, in a moment when the waters come. That's the picture here. But what's melting, it's no sandcastle. It's, it's the seat of Nineveh's power, the palace itself, all gone in a moment. And so what's the outcome for Nineveh? Verse 7. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Imagine if you've been on holiday to a foreign city and it's the summer and you're walking around the streets on holiday and you hear noises of a city, don't you? You might hear the hustle and bustle of trade, people selling things. You might just hear life going on as people call out and shout and walk around. You might hear the tinkle of glass as people sip cool drinks under the awning on a little terrace on the side of the road. All the kind of normal sights and sounds of a city It's bustling and alive. What would you hear if you happened to be in Nineveh on this day? Verse seven, it's slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. All you would hear is a sound of moaning and despair. And so what we are seeing here is a great reversal of power. This mighty city, Nineveh, completely overwhelmed by this advancing army It's a graphic film that the scenes are disturbing, but it's here for the sake of God's people, little Judah, oppressed by Assyria. It is here to give her confidence about her future, that her enemies will be overwhelmed and destroyed. We are seeing here that God has enough power to bring about judgment on all the enemies of God's people. There is no one out there. There's no enemy with enough power to withstand God's judgment when he decides to judge. There will always be this reversal of power when God comes judging. Now, historically, we know that the army of verse one that we see described in this film, well, it's the Babylonians with their army rushing in to defeat Assyria, and they do it in history. This happens But God is the one behind all of these events. He is the one calling the shots. He is bringing about this great reversal. And so what we see here, we see time again in the Bible, God is more powerful than any nation, any regime, any person. That's why we pray to God about the nations, because he has that kind of power to reverse world orders and events. And as we look around the world today, we don't see what a powerful Assyrian army. We don't see Nineveh and her pomp. But we do see many threats, many acts of evil, many ways in which God's people are oppressed by wicked forces. What a comfort for Christians under the persecution of ISIS to know that even though they experience dreadful power against them now, that one day that power will be reversed when God judges that kind of wickedness. A few years ago, I was um, heading back from a wedding on on a train and um, I got chatting to the person next to me and uh, it turns out that she was studying for a master's in international development. And so I asked her, I guess quite a cheeky question, I I said, um, given the state of the world... Given the reality of all the, the suffering and the, the difficulties in the world around us. I said, What's the answer? What's the plan to develop the world, to make it a, a better place? And she thought for a while and said, Do you know we, we hear all kinds of theories and we look at all kinds of models for, for change? But she said, You know, none of it seems to work. Not in a lasting, enduring way. There's there's so much brokenness in the world. Lasting change seems so difficult. Well, she was very honest. And humanly speaking, that is true. Given the the sinfulness and wickedness of this world, there isn't anything out there that can bring about a lasting reversal. But not so with the God of the Bible. Nahum too shows us a different kind of history. God is able to reverse the power of the Assyrians and therefore he can reverse any power, any wickedness that stands opposed to his people a great reversal of power. Well, next in this uh, vision of the future, we see a great reversal of wealth. Uh, the film continues to play as the invading army swarms into the city. And then verse eight, Nineveh is like a pool. Its water is, is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but, but no one turns back. It's not that Nineveh is literally a pool, but it's a metaphor, a picture of the wealth of Nineveh draining away. Verse nine, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. And look at the reaction of the people of Nineveh as they watch their wealth vanishing like water down a drain. Verse 10, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Um, Actually, more literally, it reads there that um, there's a trembling in the loins. You can imagine what that refers to. Every face grows pale. You see, wealth has a funny power over people. People. It gives people a sense of security and um, invincibility, the sense that no matter what happens in life, no matter what the future holds, as long as we have enough money tucked away in our savings accounts, then we will be all right. And I reckon that's how the Ninevites were thinking about their money. Look, we've got this massive reserve of wealth that we've plundered from the nations. It'll, It'll keep us going through any sticky moments. And then God's judgment comes, and they watch their wealth being plundered, and it just disappears in a moment. And that's why they shake and tremble, because the very point of their security was gone. I think there is a warning here for anyone who puts their hope in money and wealth. Uh, We see it all around us in the world. People gauge their success in life and their security in life by how big the, the savings account is or how much they're earning per year. Or we, 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 we study for our exams and we aspire to that dream job thinking that if we get enough money, then we'll be secure. And yet here we see that for people who put their security and wealth and money and they push God away and ignore him, when God comes judging the wealth, the money, it just goes like water down a drain. And so here's a great comfort to little Judah back then. All the wealth of Assyria, all the hordes of her treasures, they won't stop God's judgment. And I think it's a great comfort to God's people throughout all ages, knowing that no matter how wealthy, prosperous, the wicked might seem to be, that no amount of that kind of security will stop God judging those who stand against him. A great reversal of wealth. Finally, a reversal of status. Look at verse 11. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? Later on, verse 13. The sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. It's, as the film comes to an end, the battle's over. It's a, it's a, it's a song of mockery against Nineveh. You see... <laughs> In in history, Nineveh had chosen the the lion as a symbol for her strength. So as we read the documents that we have left for us, we see everywhere that they talk about their power and strength being like the lion. Uh, They had all around their cities um, statues of stone lions to represent their their power. You see, they thought that they were um, the the kind of top of the food chain. Uh, They were the the biggest thing in the jungle. They thought status-wise they had arrived, nothing could touch them. And uh, they had been a torment to the nations, treating the, the, the nations as prey, like a lion treating its prey. So they tormented the nations. And yet, a reversal is coming where the great lion is brought down low and there's no prey left and the sword comes and defeats the lion. It is a remarkable reversal of status. All, all the pomp and the, the kind of glory of Nineveh were like lions, all gone look at verse 13 the voices of your messengers will no longer be heard you can imagine Nineveh proclaiming across the world, look at us we're top of the pile, we're the lions and you're the prey we actually read about an example of that kind of message in in Isaiah 36 in, in a moment when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and they were full of pomp and arrogance, proclaiming that Judah would fall but no longer The voice of the messenger will no longer be heard. The arrogance of Assyria will be silenced. I guess we can hear all kinds of bad news in this life. We can hear bad news about exam results or holidays being cancelled or a phone call from the doctor. But verse 13 is the worst news anyone can ever hear. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. And because God is against Assyria, well, her downfall is assured, and all these reversals will happen. A reversal of status. And what a comfort for little Judah, a little tiny speck on the map. To know that at some point soon in the future, all of this will happen, and a great threat, the, the line of Assyria will be wiped out. And what a comfort it is to God's people throughout all ages. For so often God's people are right at the bottom of the pecking order. Uh, we see it today in the media. Christians are often the butt of jokes. Uh, we are the easy target. We are the politically correct targets in the news. We see around the world today, so often Christians are are the poorest people. The people who have the least hopes for the future, socially, economically. Today, around us in this city, in our schools and universities and workplaces, uh, so often to be a Christian is to be looked down on by other people. People feel smug when they realize that we're Christians. And yet the very people who shun Christianity perhaps the ones who feel so complacent, perhaps even cocky, the boastful ones. Well, when God comes to judge, there will be a great reversal of status. The high and mighty brought low. And so here is the vision that Nahum sees, this video that he sees in his mind of what will happen to Nineveh. And we know from history that it did happen. That the great city fell and was destroyed. And so, as we move to a close, how should we apply Nahum 2 to ourselves tonight? We've had maybe perhaps a few hints along the way, but I want to finish with two final thoughts about how we should use Nahum 2 in our hearts. I think Nahum 2 helps us to take the words of Jesus seriously. Many people feel uncomfortable about the words of judgment in the Old Testament. They prefer to go forward to the New Testament and focus on the words of, of love and acceptance we find there. But we do find similar warnings on the lips of Jesus. For example, in Matthew 25, we discover that it is Jesus himself who will judge all people personally when he returns and for those people for whom God is against, when Christ does return, Matthew 25 verse 41 says these words on the lips of Jesus. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I think Nahum too helps us to take those words seriously. Seriously. Because we've seen that when God promises judgment in the past, He has kept His word and He has judged Assyria. Which helps us to believe that when He makes other promises about judgment in the future, now, well, He will keep those promises too. And for God's people, those trusting in the Lord, this is good news. Not that we delight in the judgments of wickedness and sin, we never delight. But these words of Jesus tell us that God cares about oppression and wickedness and evil. And that one day he will look after his people in a wonderful way. He will liberate us from such powers. And so we can take the words of Jesus seriously that the wicked will be punished. But the final thought for us tonight, back in Nahum 2, verse 2. We read, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. And the question is, when? How? Because we know in history that in Nahum's day, we didn't see the splendor. In fact, after Nahum's day, Judah fell to the Babylonians in great, um, it was awful, in great judgment. Because the people of God, well, their hearts were not that different from the Assyrians. They were people who, who, who lusted after power and wealth and status. People who didn't trust in the Lord but trusted in those things instead. And so judgment came on the people of Judah as well. So when do the words of Nahum 2 verse 2 come to pass? In what sense? How do we understand it today? They come to pass not because of what we do, not because we earn it or deserve it, because that we're somehow better than the people of Judah back then. They come to pass in and through the Lord Jesus. We're going to share together in a moment a meal of bread and wine. And as we eat the, the bread and drink the wine, we remember that Christ died a terrible, brutal death, a death under God's judgment. A death that he didn't deserve because he lived a perfect life, but rather a death that we deserve for our sin and rebellion. And in Nahum too, we see just how terrible it is to be in the way of God's judgment. Well, Christ took that terrible judgment on himself that we may not face it. And it is at the cross where God once and for all takes away uh, the sin and the evil, not just out there, but in here. In each of our hearts. He defeats the devil who would love to accuse the people of God. And the cross shows us that there will be a better future. There will be a new creation where there are no sicknesses, no tears, no loneliness, uh, no worries about the future. All because of what Christ has done in the past for his people. And so as we come and share this meal tonight, let's remember Nahum 2 verse 2 that that promise is true. The Lord is at work to restore the splendor of Jacob, not because of us, but because of the Lord Jesus. And I I do hope we can see in our mind's eye how glorious a future we have. Not a land in Palestine, flowing with milk and honey, but a new creation, which can never be corrupted, never undone, never under threat, where there's no evil or sickness, And let's come tonight rejoicing because that has all been secured for us in Christ. Well, just a moment of silence, perhaps, uh, just to reflect. And then in a moment, Tim will lead us in prayer.